everybody, and welcome back to Reading the Church Fathers. Today we will be covering the second half and finishing up the Epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus, the first work of Christian apologetics after the completion of the canon of Scripture. Now, that is not to say that there aren't other works of apologetics, Justin Martyr being famous for it, Polycarp brings a little bit of that into his epistles. But for Diognetus, the epistle to Diognetus, there is a kind of thoroughness that sets Christianity apart from both Greco-Roman paganism and Germanic paganism on the one hand, and then Judaism on the other. It is a work that solidifies our position not only as the true religion, but also as a distinct one. So with that, we start on chapter 8, entitled, The Miserable State of Men Before the Coming of the Word. For who of men at all understood, before his coming, what God is? Do you accept of the vain and silly doctrines of those who are deemed trustworthy philosophers? Of whom some said that fire was God, calling that God to which they themselves were by and by to come, and some water, and others some other of the elements formed by God. But if any one of these theories be worthy of approbation, every one of the rest of created things might also be declared to be God. But such declarations are simply the startling and erroneous utterances of deceivers. And no man has either seen him or made him known, but he that revealed himself. And he has manifested himself through faith, to which alone it is given to behold God. For God, the Lord and fashioner of all things, who made all things and assigned them their several positions, proved himself not merely a friend of mankind, but also long-suffering in his dealings with them. Yea, he was always of such a character, and still is, and will ever be, kind and good, and free from wrath, and true, and the only one who is absolutely good. And he formed in his mind a great and unspeakable conception, which he communicated to his son alone. As long then as he held and preserved his own wise counsel and concealment, he appeared to neglect us, and to have no care over us. But after he revealed and laid open, through his beloved son, the things which had been prepared from the beginning, he conferred every blessing all at once upon us, so that we should both share in his benefits and see and be active in his service. Who of us would ever have expected these things? He was aware, then, of all things in his own mind, along with his Son, according to the relation subsisting between them. Now, for a moment, before we move on to the next chapter here, I do have to emphasize and talk a little bit about calling fire God, or calling water God. What does Mathetes mean by this? He is referring to the pre-Socratic philosophers, 
who showed up about 500 years before. Some of them believed that fire was the all-consuming idea behind the universe. What was the origin point of it? And if it was not fire, some of these other pre-Socratics said it was water. I believe Anaximander was the one that posited water as the fundamental substance and god of all things. Whereas Heraclitus, another uh, pre-Socratic philosopher, said, well, everything is change and the only reason we see some sort of unification is through what he called a logos. He didn't mean Logos in the way we understand Logos to be Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. For Heraclitus, he believed that the Logos was a consuming fire in the center of all existence and other such things. Mathetes casts the philosophers down as ignorant and silly, not because the philosophers had already created a religion around it, although the Platonists had this, they formed monastic communities around Platonic philosophy. To the contrary, he sees philosophy as a kind of competing worldview alongside and distinct from Greek paganism. So part of his solidifying of the identity and the distinctions of Christianity involves rejecting pagan philosophers like Heraclitus, Anaximander, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, saying all of them got it wrong. And besides, if one of them says one thing is a principle, uh, in the deity of their system, well, that puts everything in the running. And, well, you can't say bugs are God, and the fire is God, and the sky is God, and the stars are God or anything like that. All of you end up looking like fools. But we move on here to chapter 9 where he says, why the sun was sent so late. He already mentioned that God was showing forbearance, uh, waiting so long it appeared before the revealing of Jesus Christ. Let us read more on this case he makes. As long then as the former time endured, he permitted us to be borne along by unruly impulses, being drawn away by the desire of pleasure and various lusts. This was not that he at all delighted in our sins, but that he simply endured them. Nor that he approved the time of working iniquity which then was, but that he sought to form a mind conscious of righteousness so that being convinced in that time of our unworthiness of attaining life through our own works, it should now, through the kindness of God, be vouchsafed to us. And having made it manifest that in ourselves we were unable to enter into the kingdom of God, we might, through the power of God, be made able. But when our wickedness had reached its height, and it had been clearly shown that its reward, punishment, and death was impending over us. And when the time had come which God had before appointed for manifesting his own kindness and power, how the one love of God, through exceeding regard for men, did not regard us with hatred, nor thrust us away, nor remember our iniquity against us, but showed great long-suffering and bore with us. He himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. 
he gave his own Son as a ransom for us, the Holy One for transgressors, the Blameless One for the wicked, the Righteous One for the unrighteous, the Incorruptible One for the corruptible, the Immortal One for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? O sweet exchange, O unsearchable operation, O benefits surpassing all expectation, that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one, and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. Having therefore convinced us in the former time that our nature was unable to attain to life, and having now revealed the Savior who is able to save even those things which it was formerly impossible to save, by both these facts he desired to lead us to trust in his kindness, to esteem him our nourisher, father, teacher, counselor, healer, our wisdom, light, honor, glory, power, and life, so that we should not be anxious concerning clothing and food. Note here that Mathetes gives us a clear message of the gospel that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, the only begotten Son of God, died for our sins. And he does say that he is a ransom for us, but that does not necessarily mean that he holds exclusively to ransom theory of atonement. But rather, when he says he himself took on him the burden of our iniquities, that means that Jesus took our sins, and thus suffered for them. Penal substitutionary atonement is coded in the Apostolic Fathers. So is ransom theory. So is Christus Victor. The things that happen on that cross certainly are manifold. There are many things that happened there. But we cannot deny that as the Reformers said, and as Anselm of the Roman Catholic Church have declared, God must be satisfied, his justice must be satisfied, and our Lord Christ did that for us. Note also here that as part of the apologetic for Christianity, Mathetes preaches the gospel, which is the greatest apologetic, knowing that many hearts are turned to the Lord, not through demonstrating how different we are or how silly other religions are, but the fact that the Christian faith saves through the gospel. <clears throat> Speaking of faith, chapter 10 is entitled, The Blessings That Will Flow From Faith. If you also desire to possess this faith, you likewise shall receive first of all the knowledge of the Father. For God has loved mankind on whose account he made the world, to whom he rendered subject all the things that are in it, to whom he gave reason and understanding, 
to whom alone he imparted the privilege of looking upwards to himself, when he, whom he formed after his own image, to whom he sent his only begotten Son, to whom he has promised a kingdom in heaven, and will it give it to those who have loved him. And when you have attained this knowledge, with what joy do you think you will be filled? Or how will you love him who has first loved you? And if you love him, you will be an imitator of his kindness. And do not wonder that a man may become an imitator of God. He can, if he is willing. For it is not by ruling over his neighbors, or by seeking to hold the supremacy over those that are weaker, or by being rich and showing violence towards those that are inferior, that happiness is found. Nor can anyone by these things become an imitator of God. But these things do not at all constitute his majesty. On the contrary, he who takes upon himself the burden of his neighbor, he who in whatsoever respect he may be superior is ready to benefit another who is deficient. He who, whatsoever things he has received from God, by distributing these to the needy, becomes a God to those who receive his benefits. He is an imitator of God. Then thou shalt see, while still on earth, that God in the heavens rules over the universe. Then thou shalt begin to speak the mysteries of God. Then thou shalt both love and admire those that suffer punishment because they will not deny God. Then thou shalt condemn the deceit and error of the world when thou shalt know what it is to live truly in heaven. When thou shalt despise that which is here esteemed to be death. When thou shalt fear what is truly death, which is reserved for those who shall be condemned to the eternal fire, which shall afflict even those even to the end that are committed to it. Then shalt thou admire those who for righteousness' sake endure the fire that is but for a moment, and shalt count them happy when thou shalt know the nature of that fire. So from this chapter he speaks in apologetic for a changed life and a blessing in knowing that one is saved. Note here when he talks about punishment on account of eternal fire, it is also good to recognize that the early church did not hold to annihilationism. Since the first and second century, the church has understood eternal conscious torment to be exactly that, hence him saying that you do not fear a temporal death, like being burned at the stake for being a Christian, rather you fear, well, eternal damnation. Every Christian rightly says, I want no part of that, so I trust in Jesus. Chapter 11 states, These things are worthy to be known and believed. I do not speak of things strange to me, nor do I aim at anything inconsistent with right reason. But having been a disciple of the apostles, I am become a teacher of the Gentiles. I minister the things delivered to me to those that are disciples worthy of the truth. 
For who that is rightly taught and begotten by the loving word would not seek to learn accurately the things which have been clearly shown by the word to his disciples, to whom the word being manifested has revealed them, speaking plainly to them, not understood indeed by the unbelieving, but conversing with the disciples who, being esteemed faithful by him, acquired a knowledge of the mysteries of the Father. For which reason he sent the word, that he might be manifested to the world. And he, being despised by the people of the Jews, was, when preached by the apostles, believed on by the Gentiles. This is he who was from the beginning, who appeared as if new, and was found old, and yet who is ever born afresh in the hearts of the saints. This is he who being from everlasting, is today called the Son, through whom the church is enriched and grace widely spread, increases in the saints, furnishing understanding, revealing mysteries, announcing times rejoicing over the faithful, giving to those that seek, by whom the limits of faith are not broken through, nor the boundaries set by the fathers passed over. Then the fear of the law is chanted, and the grace of the prophets is known, and the faith of the gospels is established, and the tradition of the apostles is preserved, and the grace of the church exults, which grace, if you grieve not, you shall know those things which the word teaches, by whom he wills, and when he pleases. For whatever things we are moved to utter by the will of the word commanding us, we communicate to you with pains and from a love of the things that have been revealed to us. Now note here, the writer Mathetes says plainly that he is a disciple of the apostles and thus becomes a teacher of the Gentiles. He identifies himself as a first generation servant to and student of the apostles. But with that, we have the bouncing ball of denominational traditions coming into mind. Christians today should ask, do the church fathers and their traditions support my denomination? It would appear to some, at least our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends, they would say, the fear of the law is chanted, the grace of the prophets is known, yes, we we love the Ten Commandments, and we do rightly revere them. The grace of the prophets, yes, we retain the Old Testament as belonging to the church. And the faith of the Gospels is established. Yes, that is the faith, and the tradition of the apostles is preserved. And the grace of the church exalts. Well, here, we might hear, you have apostolic tradition and a church with graces in it. True, these words are there, but our question is, where are the apostolic traditions that are distinct from Scripture here? If the apostolic tradition should be here in the second century from an associate of the apostles, we should expect to see uh, reverence to and veneration of the saints. We should see the papacy or uh, hesychasm or something being represented. Yet it is not. Now, to be sure, there are people that would claim that prayers to the saints were offered up during this time. 
uh, icons were there, etc. and so forth. We do see some evidence of icons. There are some very, very old churches that might date back to the second century with icons in them, but there is no written iconographic theology for our Orthodox friends to rejoice in. Mathetes says nothing of this, the same way that St. Clement of Rome said nothing of these traditions, making us wonder whether the tradition of the apostles ever departed from the canon of the New Testament. But I digress. Chapter 12 states, The importance of knowledge to true spiritual life. When you have read and carefully listened to these things, you shall know what God bestows on such as rightly love him, being made, as ye are, a paradise of delight, presenting in yourselves a tree bearing all kinds of produce and flourishing well, being adorned with various fruits. For in this place the tree of knowledge and the tree of life have been planted. But it is not the tree of knowledge that destroys. It is disobedience that proves destructive. Nor truly are those words without significance which are written. How God from the beginning planted the tree of life in the midst of paradise, revealing through knowledge the way to life. And when those who were first formed did not use this knowledge properly, they were, through the fraud of the serpent, stripped naked. For neither can life exist without knowledge, nor is knowledge secure without life. Wherefore, both were planted close together. The apostle, perceiving the force of this conjunction, and blaming that knowledge which, without true doctrine, is admitted to influence life, declares, Knowledge puffeth up, but love edifieth. For he who thinks he knows anything without true knowledge, and such as is witnessed but true by life, knows nothing, but is deceived by the serpent as not loving life. But he who combines knowledge with fear and seeks after life plants in hope looking for fruit. Let your heart be your wisdom, and let your life be true knowledge inwardly received. Bearing this tree and displaying its fruit, thou shalt always gather in those things which are desired by God, which the serpent cannot reach and to which deception does not approach. Nor is Eve then corrupted, but is trusted as a virgin, and salvation is manifested, and the apostles are filled with understanding, and the Passover of the Lord advances, and the choirs are gathered together and are arranged in proper order, and the word rejoices in teaching the saints, by whom the Father is glorified, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So such concludes Mathetes' epistle to Diognetus. With this last chapter, we Protestants would be quite confused to hear him speaking about Eden in a symbolic fashion. We shouldn't be surprised. During this time, the allegorical method of interpreting scripture was prevalent. It does not mean that Bathetes did not believe in a true and physical Garden of Eden. It does not mean that he denies the historical fact of 
Adam and Eve eating a physical fruit that was forbidden to them. But the early church was, and especially more so when Origen comes around, it was influenced by the rabbinical tradition known as the Pardes system of interpretation, where an allegory is set up by scripture with four levels. There is the base level, the literal interpretation of the meaning of the text. Then there is a moral meaning. Then there is a theological meaning. And then eventually an eschatological interpretation at the bottom. So you have plain, moral, tropological, or theological. And then you have the eschatological meaning. Mathetes, despite pushing a distinction between Christianity and Judaism, finds himself doing what Origen would later do, what Augustine would sometimes be guilty of, and what other church fathers would do, saying that, yes, there is the actual narrative of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's a thing that happened, but knowledge and life. Those are also concepts, not merely trees. So we're going to go a little deeper and say that there is an allegory of this in which God wishes to plant in you and I seeds which bear life and knowledge. And then, of course, that brings up a soteriological or theological interpretation underneath it. And then eventually he brings... Uh, paradise revealing through knowledge, uh, an eschatological layer to it. Now, this does not mean that because some of these apostolic fathers utilized the allegorical method that we should necessarily dive in and do so ourselves. Uh, Luther famously rejected the allegorical method, as did other reformers. They were not the only ones in church history and there were schools of thought among the fathers, which we will eventually get to, that also insisted on the plain, literal meaning of Holy Scripture over and above any supposed allegory that comes in. But it is there, which is a sign that Mathetes has probably had to debate and argue with the Judaizing heresy occasionally on their terms. So, that is the Epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus. Still enigmatic somewhat in terms of the author and in terms of the date of its writing, but we do know that it was written at the same time as the other apostolic fathers, and we do see an apologetic method that says, we are different from you, we are different from your pagan religion, we are different from your philosophies, and we are not just the younger sibling to Judaism. They are entirely incorrect in their entire religion. Christianity is correct. But let us get into why that is valuable, because there is salvation there. You and I cannot save ourselves by our works, so instead we embrace Christ. Now again, if people are looking at the church fathers, hoping to have one or more justification for what 
institutional denomination they already subscribe to, or if they're curious about the arguments others are making for their denominations, if you go around looking to Mathetes or Clement or any of these others for that verification, you're going to end up being sorely dissatisfied. But there is encouragement here that the Apostolic Fathers did ferociously and fiercely hold to the Christian faith to the point where they were willing to say, yes, the persecutions against faithful Christians are ramping up, but we are not going to stop. And we are going to say that this life does not matter nearly as much as the next one. Here we are. Let them burn us if they have to, for we have heaven to look forward to. Next week, we are going to start flying through the epistles of Polycarp, many of which are just a couple pages, some of them being a 15-minute read at best, until we get to the epistle of Polycarp and then the martyrdom of Polycarp, and we'll get to discuss why he is such an important figure. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen. Thank you.